morning and welcome to Sunday service at Ananda Village. It's a joy to see you all here. I'd like to read from Rays of the One Light, which are commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita by Swami Kriyananda. This week's subject is self-reliance <coughs> excuse me, versus self-reliance. <coughs> Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Last week, we considered the need for attunement with God, with the gurus, with the wisdom of others, until we make that wisdom our own. There is a strong and, in fact, valid belief nowadays in the need for standing on one's own feet rather than depending weakly on others to carry us by their strength. Swami Kriyananda was once asked, What is the best yoga posture? That one, he replied, which sets you squarely on your own two feet. Our strength must come from within. If that strength comes from the ego, however, instead of from soul consciousness, it is like a guitar string without its sounding board. The notes it emits will be thin and feeble. Our strength must come from within, but must be coupled with recognition of our inner link with broader and higher realities. The Bhagavad Gita says in the 10th chapter, Everyone in this world whose life is glorious or prosperous or powerful, know that his achievement is but a little spark of the great sun of my effulgence. Jesus, in talking to his disciples, emphasized also the power of attunement with his own consciousness as a ray of the divine. For this ray had descended already through him in response to their devotion. It was a sign that God was already listening to them with receptive attention and did not require to be wooed in that way any longer. In the passage preceding the one that we read last week, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. This was the meaning of Paramhansa Yogananda's counsel also, when speaking more intimately to the disciples of the need for attunement with him. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Om, Om, Begin with this poem from Whispers. <clears throat> o Father, when I was blind, I found not a door which led to thee. But now that thou hast opened my eyes, 
I find doors everywhere. Through the hearts of flowers, through the voice of friendship, through sweet memories of all lovely experiences, every gust of my prayer opens a new door in the vast temple of thy presence. Good morning. (laughs) For those of you who don't know me, my name is Nitai. I'm doing the service this morning with Latika. Um, This uh, service this morning, uh, the topic is pretty simple. Basically, it has to do with a capital letter. We're going to go from the small self to the big self. So self with a small S to self with a capital S. And uh, in tracking that journey, it'll be fairly autobiographical. This is a, um, this is a big week for me. I am uh, completing uh, 40 years here at the village and um, moving on later this week up to our new community in Laurelwood near Portland, Oregon. And the time I've spent here, and of course the few years before I came, uh, is a perfect um, example of this journey from the small self to the, the large self. Um, so when starting out in that small self, um, as I matured into adulthood, I was very quickly, uh, deeply dissatisfied with the world I found myself in. It was a world that, uh, from an Indian tradition, we would say it would be, uh, encased in Maya. It had all the, uh, accoutrements of a, of a world. It had, you know, jobs and people and relationships and all these different things. But it was all in a very, very narrow perspective of the ego. Um, this was like, the, mainly it's the 60s when I was going through this beginning of transformation. There were um, not a lot of examples. Today we're blessed because we've evolved as a planet. Um, and where there are many more examples of what a higher approach to life might mean. But back then there were very few. At least there was few that I was exposed to. I was exposed to the Christian tradition, uh, especially through the Catholic perspective. And you knew that there was something else out there, <laughs> something that was kind of vague and mysterious and uh, didn't, I don't know, it somehow didn't translate. I couldn't get it to translate into something that was doable. Um, and there were the traditions. There was uh, the Bible uh, that you could try to read if you wanted to. <laughs> and... Uh, I didn't get very far uh, trying to understand it. There was the uh, institution of a churches around, but getting close to them didn't inspire me. Um, and then there were the people who were that I at least came across who were trying to practice those teachings, and I didn't find them all that inspiring either. <laughs> I found a lot of sadness and just kind of uh, there was something missing. Later on, I would say, "Well, it was joy. <laughs> joy. The joy was that had been uh, taken out of those traditions. It's." in there, and it can be rediscovered, but I didn't have anybody to, to uh, embody that or show me that way. And when I looked around at the rest of society, it was, I would get sadder and sadder because I just saw people with very petty perspectives on life. Um, first three or four jobs I had was like a uh, journey through the different ways that ego can manifest <laughs> in petty ways. People, you know, had a little bit of power and they seemed all excited about them, you know, making their little power spot a little bigger at the expense of other people. Um, and um, 
I just, you know, it was just one after another. Um, I went, I did go to college and I looked and I thought, well, maybe this is it because there's, people are at least examining life and asking questions. But then I looked at the professors who were kind of the heroes of that domain. And again, I didn't, I did, something was missing. Again, it was joy. I didn't see joy. I saw, I did see earnest, you know, kind of concern for something more, but uh, nothing that really appealed to me to want to commit my life to. So that was the, that was the preliminary stage. And then over the next few years, there were four blessings that were awaiting me. Um, I was impatient, as everybody is in their 20s. You can't imagine uh, waiting waiting until things unmanifest in their own own way. Um, So that created a certain amount of angst. Um, But then I started, just because I was looking, the first blessing came in. That was a blessing of realizing that there is a path, (laughs) that there is... A higher consciousness that manifests on, on can manifest on this plane. That came to me through a lot, a lot of books in the beginning, reading different people's perspective on it, and it just started. Oh my gosh! There's a, something else out there, something besides this very monotonous, ego-driven world that I found myself in. Um, people were. Trying, I wasn't the only one, of course. There's a whole generation of people starting to, to uh, stir in that direction. And people were looking all over the place. There, was the, there were the hippies all over there in Golden Gate Park. Uh, and there were the drugs where people were saying, well, maybe it's here, maybe it's in drugs. And then there's the glimpses of Eastern spirituality that were starting to come in. And then a few glimpses of the deeper parts of the Christian tradition, too. And they were all kind of circulating out there, and it kind of got me, uh, caught my attention. So it was the first thing in my adult life that really caught my attention, that maybe this is something to pursue. Of course, I didn't know how to pursue it, um, but it was just like, no, there is something more than this tiny little world that I've been experiencing so far. And so I made it a priority to start to look around. Um, Again, everything in its own uh, timing. Swami Kriyananda was actually in the Bay Area teaching at that time, <laughs> and I just never crossed paths. There was no, uh, I'm sure he had billboards up and things, like, or posters up, and nothing, it wasn't my time. And um, so the second blessing that came in, though, for me, was uh, to come across Autobiography of a Yogi. And here uh, was something that just, hit me on a level that was uh, so deep, deep enough to get past a lot of my um, initial concerns because there were, uh, well, the first line in the autobiography talks about the guru-disciple relationship. I never heard of a guru in in this foreign concept in Western society. I always uh, think of people who come from the Indian, were born in India, are blessed because it's it's just something, of course, that's part of life. The West, uh, like in Swami's talk this morning, is the whole idea of standing on your own two feet, doing it yourself, uh, was deeply ingrained in me. And um, the idea of looking for a guru was not something I was actively doing at that point. It took me three or four years, actually, to come to terms with that, even to a beginning level. Um, So the... But this idea with the autobiography of Yogi was that there was just a power there. It was just amazing. Uh, it touched me deeply. The other things were all these, uh, what we would call miracles in the West that were written about there. And uh, I had, didn't have a whole lot of faith in miracles. Uh, it was interesting to have them explained that they, 
uh, I was talking to my daughter the other day about, you know, miracles are simply a deeper level of science than we have right now. <laughs> it's not that they're anti-science. It's just that they go beyond the current understanding that science can have. Um, and that you can work these deeper uh, laws uh, with intuition and uh, you know, higher expectations. So I read that, uh, that book, uh, and it was enough to make me change. Well, not, I, hadn't, I was already leaning that way. It was enough to make me say, no, that's, this is the way to go. This is, I need to pursue this. Of course, I didn't know how to do that. Um, I thought, well, I'd go. First of all, when I started the book, of course, I thought he was still alive. And uh, I was all excited about finding out. I was in India at the time. And I went thought, well, I'll find the ashram and I'll go study. And then by the I got into the book, I thought, oh my gosh, he left India. He went to the United States. <laughs> Not only that, he went to California, which is where I started. <laughs> so, um, so I came back and I thought, well, I will go study there. So I went to uh, Southern California and looked at Self-Realization Fellowship and had this very disheartening experience that I didn't feel at home. Um, it was vibrational. I don't remember any specific incidents or anything, but it just, it was very confusing at that point because I, I was really drawn to Yogananda. I didn't, didn't resonate with the uh, organization he'd founded and didn't know what that meant. But, you know, again, patience. <laughs> and about six months later, I found out about Ananda and the uh, idea of spiritual community. And that was the third, third blessing, was here was a place, here was a place to practice these things. When I came here for the first time, this is uh, 1970, uh, I didn't know, again, I was st still very, very new to all this, and I came here, and then there's, you know, the outer part of it. There wasn't much outer part at that point, actually. <laughs> it was, a, um, but uh, the thing that struck me most was the people. Um, I, just would, I just met these different people here who, they were really different than the people I'd grown up with. I, that was the other part, hard part of growing up in this, what I'll call a Maya uh, and, and confined world. A lot of other people seemed pretty happy in that world. <laughs> it was like, you know, there was just like, oh yeah, you could go out there and you could, um, you know, basically build your ego, <laughs> and, and that seemed pretty satisfying to a lot of my friends, uh, and uh, that made me feel strange, <laughs> a stranger in a strange land. That was one of the books out in those days, and um, because I didn't find anybody that I really resonated with who had any kind of those similar sensitivities that I had had until I came to Ananda Village. And then I just started to see, oh my gosh, look at that. There's somebody that I can relate to that way for the first time in my life. And I'm sure many people here have had that same experience. You come here and you're just, like, you're just kind of want to run around jumping up and down because there's, you, found, you found your spiritual family, basically. You found other, other so like-minded souls. And I'll get back to this third blessing in a, in a moment because there's so much to uh, spiritual community <clears throat> and this, this transformation from the smaller self to the bigger self. Um, but the fourth blessing was meeting Swami Kriyananda. Swami Kriyananda was the most unusual person I had met <laughs> up to that point. Um, it, it was a challenge for me because he was so dynamic. He was... 
he had all this enthusiasm and power that he was manifesting. And the whole idea of power in the spiritual path did not go hand in hand with my perspective at that point. The only power I had seen, manifestations of power, were all egoic power. There were people, the powerful people were the ones that became really rich, or they became the politicians, or they became the generals in the army, or they, there were people that pushed themselves and smashed everybody else in the process. And so to come across somebody who had that kind of power, it was like, whoa, <laughs> I didn't know that went together. It helped a little later when um, I heard my first recordings of Master's voice, because that wasn't how I pictured Master, but when I heard his voice, I had the same response, oh my gosh, this person has power. <laughs> um, and I, you know, for some reason I thought, well, the spiritual path is fine if it's kind of kind and loving and gentle, and all those qualities were, were easier, much easier for me to come to terms with. So anyway, but I had these four blessings now. I, I knew that there was a path. I had, uh, you know, Master in the Autobiography. I had Ananda Village, and I had Swami Kriyananda. And so that, when all those were in place, it was like, okay, now we're ready to begin. <laughs> now we're ready. So I'm about 26 or 7 at that point. And um, then the, the transformation starts. You start to see, become aware of that little S in you. You become aware, because when you're living in the middle of it, it's very hard to become aware of it because it is everything. <laughs> it's everything that you do is just from that perspective of the ego. And you get these, start to get these glimpses. Another, another thing that was happening back in the 60s is even from the Western psychology perspective, people were starting to explore this idea of higher states of awareness. Um, I remember, I think it was Abraham Maslow was talking about peak experiences. That they were these little, these little moments when all of a sudden you would find yourself in a kind of a heightened sense of awareness. And I'd had a few of those when I was growing up. And uh, I didn't know what to do with them. They didn't seem to have anything to do with religion at all. But it was just, uh, I had had them. I knew they were true. And so that was another little encouragement that maybe there was something more in life. But he talked about them, you know, as something that there was there. Western psychology is so much, just maybe, I don't know, I say it's still in its infancy, but it's so, so kind of beginning compared to the teachings of the East, which are so full and developed and mature. But it helped. It helped to have some, uh, some support from that perspective, too. So you come and you start in and you, you uh, find out that those peak experiences can happen through meditation. They can happen through chanting. Chanting was another thing. I had, I had no place in my brain for chanting when I came here. And it was, uh, it did, it took, literally it took me at least two or three years before I could chant when I was here. Um, <clears throat> so, but you find that, you know, you start to say, oh my gosh, you know, like I remember Hong Sa, we have, again, you know, things with, with Master, you get these tools, you get tools to work on. It's not just kind of blindly stumbling around in your life trying to find those peak moments and hoping that they happen once in a while, but you've got tools to work with. And I remember Hong Sa and trying Hong Sa and, you know, it didn't work all the time, but it, often it start, worked. It worked better than anything else I'd tried. <laughs> it, was, it was like, oh my gosh, I can use this tool. And then coming, coming in with energization and seeing what an incredible blessing energization is. Because, you know, I don't know, probably like most people, I would have these ups and downs in my energy level. And when the downs came, I just didn't feel very good. I was kind of felt yucky and you kind of wallow around in that. And, you know, up to that point, it was just like, well, I guess I just hang out here in this till it goes away. It was kind of like watching the weather change or something. <laughs> 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 but 
But then with energization, I realized that all I had to do when I was feeling bad is get outside and do these exercises, and 10, 15 minutes later, I would feel different. I would, I would be out of that mood. I might not be in bliss samadhi, but I didn't have the, the bad moods anymore. And also the energy level, too. I started, that was my first little glimpse of where, this, where Swami Kriyananda might be coming from. Is he had so much energy. I couldn't believe the amount of energy he had. And my energy fluctuated. You know, sometimes it would be up, sometimes it would be down. But I started to see, well, with energization, I was up more than I was before. And so I just started experimenting with all that. Of course, I had the incredible blessing of having gurubais around. Um, these other people who were pioneering the same thing. Ananda, you know, in the 1970s was definitely a pioneering effort. There, I'm sure there were other places on the planet where people were practicing these things, but there was no, no place else that I knew of. And it was like this little... Um, I try to describe to people what the 70s were like in Ananda. And it, it was like moving to on a, an island, at least, if not another planet, <laughs> that was basically cut off from the broader American society. Um, there's so much that happened in the 70s outwardly that I, I really I didn't experience. <laughs> it was because it was like this little incubator that for the souls that had been drawn that had, they, we had to be cut off because the change was so deep and so radical that you, you would, it would dissipate if you had too much you know, newspapers or TVs or all the different things that were that would, from that other consciousness, that small s, small self-consciousness that was so perme- permeating society. So it was cut off. It was cut off uh, for about 10 years. Um, we were out here in the woods. Um, I think there was one telephone in the community at that point. No newspapers. Um, it was so fun to try to run a life without... You know, how did you make appointments? You know, was, everything was intuitive. <laughs> That's the only thing you had. So, so if you ran into the person, okay, we were supposed to meet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> of course, there were no computers in those days. So it's, uh, um, and, then, and then we got to spend time with Swami. And at that point, you know, Swami was the only one here who had any real experience with the spiritual path. And so, so he was, you know, gracious enough to spend a, quite a bit of time with us. We had satsangs. I remember every Thursday night there would be a satsang over at his house and every Sunday that he, went, he would do almost all the Sunday services in those days. And he made himself very available. Um, and you just kind of by osmosis you start to see, oh my gosh, because he was, he was like a kind of a vision of where we might be able to get to at some point if we followed, you know, we practice these teachings and we made made use of what had been given us. And um, of course, he was only one personality, which made it more difficult because it's like you start to think that maybe spiritual growth looks exactly like his personality, and that was that was the challenge of those years. <laughs> and now it's not so. Now you see so many more examples of that, and you can kind of have the freedom to just become yourself and let that unfold. But that was that was a little that was challenging for me in those, that period of time. Um, but slowly but surely, I remember one, going over one day to his house, and he said, oh, I've got this, I, I made a, um, a sonata, I created a sonata. I didn't know what a sonata was. <laughs> and uh, so he got down, sat down at the piano, and he starts playing what's now we call now the Divine Romance. And I found myself crying. And I never cried. <laughs> it was just, and I, it was just like, this was so 
beautiful, so touching. And it's just like, oh my gosh, there's another, another, another part of this whole new world of the capital S that's opening up for me, the, the higher self. Um, you had this community, and this community gave you all the opportunities to transmute all these little small s things that were you'd brought with you. We were doing the fire ceremony in the temple today, and you have the rice. You have you put the rice in the, in the uh, fire, and almost, truly, those little kernels. It was just like you know, you ever all of us carry those little kernels around with us. And they are all those little things that are trapped in the small s, that's trapped in the little ego. So one of your kernels might have something to do with your finances, your money. Um, I had this great opportunity. I came here. I, I came here, I had $3,000 in my bank account. And I got here and um, started working with the kids, and Seva was the community treasurer. And she told me, well, you do have a budget. And I said, great. She says, what is it? She says, it's $50 a month. <laughs> and, and I said, and what about salary? She says, oh, that's part of the budget. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so for three years, I watched my bank account go, <laughs> but I was pretty frugal. I could spread it out over three years. And finally, I got to the point of it was zero. <laughs> it was zero one day. And um, I thought, okay, Divine Mother, now what do we do? And it was just at that point that the school had generated, where I was working, the school had generated enough energy where we could start paying me, a, you know, I forget what it was, $150 a month or something like that. It was minimal, but in those days, it, it could, you could live on that here if you were single. And so I went all the way, but I had to go all the way down to zero, and then it started to go the other way, started to build back up. So that was one of my little kernels. Um, well, just... Your approach to your job, you know, like how do you approach your job? Is it an ego-driven ego job where you're trying to make yourself important and uh, impress people? Um, well, you had all these people around you modeling or striving to model something different. And Swami talking to us about uh, the joy of service. And that, you know, that's the, we want to tune into service, not to work. And it was a new concept. Uh, but I found that, you know, try it out. I was at the point, I was willing to try out things, which is great. So you try out that and you realize, oh, there's, it's, it's true. When you approach it that way, you do feel uh, a sense of inner um, fulfillment that I never got from the other perspective of trying to try out the ego approach to having a job. Um, relationships, friendships, you know, that was also lots of little kernels of rice around that one. <laughs> and you, but you start... Again, as a group, you start to work on that and you start to see that there, there are ways of interacting with each other that aren't ego-driven, that are, that are more just an unfoldment, an opening up of love in different ways. The um, whole idea of love having so many different aspects to it. You know, it's, it's a word that's badly uh, defined in, uh, in the egoic society. It's like, what can you do for me? <laughs> And uh, all of a sudden, no, what can I do for you? It's just a simple little movement changes everything. And so you used to work on that one for a while. And you, 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 know, you, you trip. I made my share of trips, falls. But then you, you have this support system around you. Seeing other, you, see other, you, know, you, you get to know everybody pretty well, and you see them tripping and falling. And then you see they got up, <laughs> and they kept going. And they uh, didn't give up. They, they just... They just kept working with these things. 
And gradually, slowly, this transformation starts to take place where those, all those little small s things that used to create tension and that create sadness and separation and all these things, they start to give way. You know, Master, at one point, I remember reading Master's comment that uh, the path works in four stages. At first, you have no idea where, <laughs> of what this higher state of consciousness is. Second stage, you get little glimpses occasionally. Third stage is you're there um, about half the time, and then the fourth stage, you're there all the time. So it's, but basically, I mean, there's more than four stages. It's a continuum. And you find yourself, but you do find yourself moving along that continuum where you start to be able to bring that sense of grace, that sense of peace into more and more of your life. I mean, so I spent, I don't know how many years, I was blessed, one of my blessings uh, from the very beginning, which I deeply appreciate, is I was able to meditate. Uh, I don't know where it came from, but I could have a deep meditation most of the time. But that's about where it stopped, <laughs> because you have this deep meditation, and you open your eyes, and you're right back. You went from the big S to the small S with one movement of your eyelids. <laughs> and now you're out there, and you're, you know, you're still caught in these old patterns of, of, of living. But you find that, if you, again, if you just work with it, if you, especially you, when you have that blessing of an inner uh, uplifted energy in meditation, you don't charge out of your meditation. <laughs> you go slow. You move, you, you, you know, you experiment. I mean, I, I would experiment with, okay, let me see if I can, <laughs> I remember that story. <clears throat> this, this is, I'm borrowed from my mom, who's a wonderful lady. Um, she has a sign on her uh, refrigerator. It says, well, Lord, today, it's been a good day. She said, I haven't argued with anybody. I haven't had any uh, moods. I'm uh, I've a couple lists a couple other things, and it says, and now I'm going to get up and get out of bed. <laughs> yeah, from now on, I need your help. So I was trying to apply that to the you know I feel I feel bliss. I feel one with the universe. I feel divine mother, and now I'm going to open my eyes. <laughs> and I found that it was really I mean it's silly, but sometimes I just I'd only be able to open them for like five seconds and I have to close again because I lost it already. But I do that. Okay, I practice with that. Okay, I'm going to close my eyes and I'm gonna, now I'm going to open them. And I thought, well, maybe that's why Lahiri and the others have their eyes half open. <laughs> so I, but I did find that, okay, if you really work at it, if you really work at it, you can keep your eyes open for longer and longer and then one day you can stand up and you can actually walk out of your meditation room without, without losing it. And uh, then you can expand it more and more and more until you really do have a, what Master calls a uh, portable, portable paradise, a portable sanctuary. I always love that, that um, image, that the goal, the prize that we develop is something where we don't need to be sequestered all the time. We don't need to be a hermit in a cave. We, don't, we, we can be anywhere because... The divine power is the most is the, the greatest one in the universe, and at at some point, if you're patient, <laughs> you can go wherever you need to go. You can go wherever God calls you. By that time, you're only going where God calls you, which helps a lot. But um, it, you you don't you you can be in the midst of all kinds of um, arguments and uh, challenges and stuff, and and not lose it. I had my own little um, battlefield, of course, because I was working with the kids and. Uh, Working with um, children and teenagers is, is not a, uh, 
what's the word, a um, hermit's life, <laughs> where you take things slowly. You, your things are coming at you fast, you know, day after day and challenging and pushing all your buttons. So that was kind of nice to have as a, looking back <laughs> on it that way. But you do see that the fruit, all of the promises, uh, they, they do come. I can't claim to be in that higher state all the time, but it's so much more than it was ever before. And it's growing. It uh, continues to grow. And I just feel that, um, you know, that divine blessing um, more and more powerful in every aspect of my life. So I guess the, the, you know, the fruit of my personal experience of um, spending all of my adult years, my, truly all of my adult years in a spiritual community is I highly recommend it. <laughs> if that's the goal that you have for your life, that you want to find that higher self within you and learn to manifest it in every aspect of your life, Yogananda said the spiritual communities would be essential to this period. And it's, I, I have, it's completely obvious to me why that's the case. Because we still, are, the general society is still a small s society. It, it, and it uh, glorifies the ego. It uh, still looks down with disdain on, on spiritual uh, attitudes and doesn't understand them. It's ignorant of them. And so it's very hard, not impossible. There are, you know, depending on your karma, it's, it's not impossible to do it in a regular setting. But if you have the opportunity, it's just to imagine that when you buy a loaf of bread in the grocery store, the person checking you out is a person who's striving for higher consciousness. When you go to talk to your child's teacher in school, that person is trying to manifest a higher consciousness. When you go to the doctor and you have your foot examined <laughs> because you sprained your ankle, that person is trying to, to show a higher consciousness. Um, all, across, all your human needs are being fed by people who, who have this uplifted perspective on life. It, it's a huge blessing. It's a huge blessing. And to... Uh, do whatever you can to, to take advantage of that. If you have the opportunity, is one of the best things you can do with your life. To have people around you, like Swami Kriyanandas, um, people who have a higher level of consciousness than you have, and they can give you concrete, in-the-moment, day-to-day type thing. Not scriptures, necessarily. Scriptures are helpful. But... More help. There are a lot of scriptures already. <laughs> you can read the Bhagavad Gita. There's, it's there, and you can look at other things. But to have somebody make their decisions and model for you how they bring that into life, surprise you, stretch you. I, and again, the, the power thing again. I mean, you know, Swami would make decisions like uh, renting Ananda House. This is like 1978 or 79 in San Francisco. <clears throat> so it's the end of our little inward, small Ananda world here on this piece of land. And so I just hear it. Swami's gone down to San Francisco and he's rented a 40-room mansion in Pacific Heights, <laughs> which is you know, the most expensive piece of property in, the, in San Francisco overlooking the Golden Gate Bridge. And it was like, my God. <laughs> uh, and you see, but you, that's just one example of thousands uh, over the time. And then, of course, of 40 years, you have a chance to see, does it work? <laughs> Did it work? And it's like, how many times, you know, I'm sure many others, it's like, 
Ananda, it looks like it functions on a shoestring that's that's uh, starting to fray. <laughs> and it's like, you know, tomorrow could be the last day. <laughs> but then you go for 40 years of tomorrows, you start to have, you know, people will say, oh, there's something deeper at work here. And, uh, yeah, we can uh, draw on this deeper uh, help that we've, we're all cultivating in our own lives and manifested outwardly. So I will be going up to uh, Laurelwood, um, a little bit south of Portland, and um, this wonderful new venue to apply what we've been learning here all these years. Um, my job is to take the principles, of these basic you know, universal principles that are there on the planet that we've had a chance for 40 years to use. How do you apply them to children? How do you share them with children? And to see if there's anybody out there that is interested in you know, incorporating this, learning with us, finding other people who have done this on their own in their own ways, um, and learning to cl- collaborate with them and network and build something. Because you know, if you look around, all the things that need to be changed in that small s society, one of the biggest ones is the small s school, <laughs> because our our schools out there are they're they're so far behind the times. In fact, they're heading in the wrong direction. <laughs> they're just going the opposite of where we're, where life is trying to go on this planet with moving into this big s you know, higher consciousness is getting more and more petty, more and more narrow in its consciousness of, we had this class this week where one of the teachers who came said, um, in kindergarten now, she said, there is really no kindergarten in California public schools anymore. It's, it's really what used to be first grade. Uh, the amount of time allotted to play in kindergarten is 10 minutes a day. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, because there's so many, too many other important things like learning to read and do math and spell and all these different things that you think, why does a five-year-old need to do these things? Um, But that's where it's going. So there's a huge need out there to try to help turn that that wave of uh, ignorance and to try to help people know it's it's so much more, uh, there's something so much more we can do to honor childhood and its strengths and to draw on it out there. So you can... uh, you can pray for me as we go out there. 